So I put this up. Um, this is from Second Timothy, and it should be familiar with to all of you. And it's Paul writing to Timothy, and this will just set us up for why we're even doing this in the first place. But um, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he says, From um, childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work. So as Paul's writing this, keep in mind the New Testament wasn't in people's hands. So he was talking about the Old Testament for the most part. And one of the last section is, sections is this post-exilic period that we're in. So we've heard from some of the prophets. This would have been uh, a couple hundred years before Jesus, maybe 400 years before Jesus. It was the last time anything big is going on. The Bible kind of stops talking about things uh, soon after the events that we, we've been talking about recently. So for the kids out there, it's a little bit like um, thinking about around 1776. We know a whole bunch about that. You know, we got Ben Franklin, we've got Declaration of Independence, we've got the Boston Tea Party, you've got the Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. A whole bunch is happening. But if I ask you to talk about the 1820s, 1830s, you don't have a whole bunch to go on. So this was kind of like that for Jesus. There's a lot going on, and it's a little hard to keep the timeline straight. So that's what I'm going to try to do is set that up for you. But this was the rich time of God's moving. You had big things happening, and you had the prophets speaking, and, and Jesus would have known these, and then also Timothy would have known this. So when Paul's talking about the scriptures, the most recent ones would have been the kinds of passages that we're going to look into. And wisdom is what it's supposed to do, wisdom with regard to salvation. And the difference between just knowing things and being wise, wisdom is really being able to apply those things to your life. So the scriptures and knowing the scriptures of what makes you wise. And I remember uh, when I became a believer before my junior and senior year of college, it was a pretty dramatic conversion experience at a Bible study in August. And then I went right back to school at the University of Richmond. I lived in Baltimore at the time. And I remember, um, you know, a whole new way of li living. I, I knew that I had to step out of some of the things that I was doing because I just didn't know how to be a Jesus follower. I was president of the rugby team. I didn't mind the on-game stuff, but taking those guys on the road was a challenge. And some, I knew enough to know a lot of what we were doing wasn't in the scriptures. I didn't know how to lead them, so I stepped back from that. I stayed in my fraternity, but I just went. I didn't you know, participate in a lot of that stuff, but I tried to stay present. But I was wondering, what do I fill my life with? I knew a lot of things I wasn't supposed to do, but what was I supposed to do? And so I, early on, I heard a Christian speaker say that invest your life in things that last forever, the word of God and people. So I tried to orient myself that way and dig into the scriptures, which a lot of it was really new to me. And, and, and the Old Testament, I had a hard time with. I just, the God of the Old Testament, I had a hard time with. So these are things that I wanted to learn, and I started to think, yeah, I want to be wise. I, I know that the gospel isn't just um, put your faith in Christ and then try not to sin too much, go to church about three times a month, and then just wait till you die to go to heaven. I knew there had to be more. 
And so this is part of it. Growing in maturity is a picture for the faith for all of us. I want to be wiser in my salvation next year than I am right now. And I want to be able to use the scripture well. And it's a little bit complicated. Sometimes you have to dig in pretty deep. But it's profitable for a lot of things. So doctrine, we're talking about doctrine a little more. And Adara drew this for us, the peers, which I'll go back and forth off of. She did that while the worship team was practicing last week, wasn't I didn't see it, but you guys almost stopped worshiping to watch her draw this up. Um, take a picture if you want. I know Stuart has a picture. I have a picture. This is the middle school chalkboard, so there's no guarantee it'll be there next week. Um, I turn it around. Uh, and I also want to apologize to you Stay the Samers that came in, and the sanctuary looks a little different. Usually though it works on Friday afternoons. I'm the roadie. So I put all the sound equipment on. Kirsten sets up the sanctuary and where everything goes. And, but last Friday, she had to go set up for the father-daughter dance, and I was left to organize some of this stuff. So we're a little crooked, I'm noticing, and that's all me. Um, so I apologize if it didn't look the same. But doctrine is something we're going to talk about. Reproof, that's a constant thing in the life of a Jesus follower. I remember the first week I was a believer, you know, I knew those big things that I wasn't supposed to do and remove from my life. So I didn't, I wasn't, I can't say I liked all of it, but I was kind of ready for that. And then uh, I remember riding with this guy for a couple hours, and he said, look, the thing I got to tell you is as a Jesus follower, you're probably always going to have some big thing in front of you that you need to deal with. And I remember thinking, what do you mean? He said, yeah, um, you're going to deal with a wave of changes, but the Lord, if he's working in you, is going to stir up something that you need to be working on. And I wasn't really ready for that. But I've seen that to be true in that if the Lord is really shaping me, this Luke 6 talks about how every student who is fully formed will be like his master. There are things that I'm going to be growing to become more like Jesus. I'm not there yet, but I need to be ready that the Lord may be working in me each season, maybe even on a different thing, and am I up for that? But the scripture is going to be one of the key um, means for doing that. And then correction. There's just still, we're all going to need correction at different times, and the scripture is what we line up on. So that's why in our peer picture over there, we have 10 doctrinal statements, which are on the connection desk behind the cross, and it's behind the cross because I set it up and didn't leave space for it. But it's over there, and the doctrinal statement has about 10, 10 points on it. And for us on the right side, the first pylon there, the first telephone pole is the scripture. And that's something that I've always got to be lining up on. And it says the man of God may be complete. I want to be complete, and I want to be equipped for every good work. And we talk about gifting in this church, and we also need to talk about character. And the reason why is you can be really gifted, but if you don't have the Christ-like character, you can do a lot of damage. Just because somebody's gifted doesn't mean they have the character to walk in the gift that they have. So we're going to be talking about those two things, and, you, and you've seen it with different giftings. Some giftings are more likely to cause damage outwardly than others. Somebody that is a good leader that um, isn't strong in the Lord may lead people in the wrong direction. There are, there are different things even uh, along the prophetic. If somebody's gifted prophetically but they don't have the character to know how to temper how they speak, they can say some intense things and do some damage. So every gifting needs to be balanced in a maturity in Christ, and that's what we're here to do. So I want to jump into the... Um, 
into this, the season that we're in in the scriptures. We have, uh, we're in the post-exilic time, that's where we are, and it sets up right after the Babylonian captivity, what's known as the Babylonian captivity. And so what happened was, and I just thought we'd go back because um, maybe it's still a little bit unclear to you what was going on, but in big picture, and this is more for the kids, just big picture, a thousand years before Jesus, the kings come in. And then for about 400 years, there's kings in Israel. And then about 600, they get kicked out of the land. And so if you jump in at that point, God seems really harsh. And the people of Israel seem really sinful. And sometimes when I first read it, I remember thinking, how dumb can you be? But now that I've been a human for longer, I'm amazed at how dumb I can be. And just be like, how could I not see that? Uh, so they are not getting the big picture because they are in trouble. Uh, the southern kingdom has already seen the northern kingdom taken away by the Assyrians, and they're still not getting it. And so this is from the end of Second Chronicles. It's just before they get kicked out. And when they get kicked out, they really get kicked out in a harsh way. And so this is from Second Chronicles 36. And it says, the Lord God of their fathers sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. This is a good picture of God the Father. He is in the middle of, well, the end, really, of punishing them. Um, this is something that they have been warned against in Leviticus, that eventually, if they disbehave, they're going to be kicked out of the land. It's written there. They, they should have known it. They don't pick up on it. But a picture of God the Father. So our, on the left side of our pier, we've got God the Father. That's the first one. And a proper picture of him is this. I mean, he has sent warnings to them. Um, he rises up early. That's that picture of a dad that is just trying to help his son out, you know, trying to have compassion and make exception and say, well, not exception, but make allowance for, for how life is tough. And he's got his dwelling place, this whole beautiful temple that was there was a time where it was Solomon's time, his glory fills it. His temple was a great place. It could have been wonderful. It could have been wonderful, but the children are wrecking it. And that's the picture of God that we want to have in the midst of it. And unfortunately for us, in some ways, the scripture with the prophets is really talking to a people who is about to get kicked out of the house. And I remember talking to a dad who just absolutely loved his son, but he told me I had to kick him out. I could no longer sleep with my car keys in my hand under my pillow. He said it had gotten to that point where he had to hold his car keys, all the keys, under his pillow in his hand, lest his son take something and go do something really bad. So the picture is of a loving father who really cares and has created this awesome opportunity. And you, you know how... Like, as kids, we can wreck things. So I'll give you an example. I loved dodgeball when I was in sixth grade. And so my dad uh, worked a lot. He had two jobs, um, and he worked a lot. And he was my sixth grade 
birthday we were doing and the kids from school were coming over and my dad mowed this area of our yard and made a Greek dodgeball court. So it's not, you know, kind of like where the chairs are. And he limed it and everything. Well, I was a little competitive as a kid. And one of the kids that came over just had a gift for ticking me off. And so we got in the same way of relating as we did on the school playground, which at one time ended in a pretty good fight, mostly ended in a pretty good verbal thing. Well, I started up, he started up, and then we're at it full blown. And my dad, he's like, I could see, I could see his face. I couldn't do anything. I was already locked into my way of behaving, but he finally breaks it up and he's like, sent me to my room. And I only saw it from my perspective, which I played out. I was like, it's my birthday. I'm being punished. You know how kids can be. And I was really good at sulking. So I was doing that. And then it was years later, maybe 10 or 20, when I saw it from my dad's perspective of he took the day off, he did all this stuff, he lined the field, and my sinfulness, because I didn't think about mine, I was right, the other kid was clearly wrong, 100%, but my dad, I finally saw it from my dad's perspective, like, what do I need to do here, you know? He had created this perfect atmosphere, the weather was fine, all my friends came, and I ruined it with my sinfulness. That's the picture of God that we want to have. Um, a good shepherd, you know, one that really cares. And that's, um, that's how I would like us to start with our picture of God. The first telephone pole in the, in the water over there is God the Father. That's who we have. And then, again, it gets to the point where it's just so bad. There's just that you guys get it. It's like there was no remedy. There was nothing more he could do. He couldn't do any more than sleep with his keys under the pillow, and that was it, and they were kicked out. So, um, and this is what happens to them. Those that escaped uh, from the sword, they end up going away to Babylon. They become servants. They're in Persia, and it says to fulfill by the mouth of the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept the Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. You know, so the scripture talks about the Sabbath, and um, I don't know quite how to uh, really process this, but, you know, he's giving land rest. Um, it's, it's a bigger picture. There's something in the earth that matters, and the people had gotten so bad, they didn't do what he said of taking Sabbath, and he warned them, eventually, the land's going to get its Sabbath. If the only way I can do it is to get you off of it, that is what I'll have to do. But again, it wasn't his plan. Like, the goal of my dad wasn't to get me off the Greek volley or dodgeball court that he built for me and send me to my room, but that was the only way the event could go on, was to get me out of there. The party was done for me, he created all this whole perfect environment for me, but I was so stuck in my sin that the only way it could go was for me to be pulled out, and so that's what's happening here. And you'll see, if you want to look back in Leviticus, that's where God gives the, the gradual warnings of how it's going to be before you're kicked out. And it's a long list. It starts with minor things, and it ends with them getting kicked out of the land. And this is really, really where they are. And so they get kicked out. And you guys know the story. They get sent to Babylon. So now is here where we jumped in Ezra. And it's Ezra 6. And I'll just tell you, doing things, going through the Scripture, which is what we're doing, we're going through passages here, sometimes they don't break on a perfect message, and this is one. So you'll see in a few minutes that 
you naturally wouldn't do a message. These are two different messages, and, and it's ending in six, but a whole bunch happens. There's a big gap in years that's going to come up. But if you remember, they had come, and, and they had responded to the prophets, and they had built up the temple, and things were going great. They dedicate the temple, and here they are. And it's talking about um, the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. And they offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bullocks, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and for a sin offering for all Israel, 12 he goats according to the number of tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their courses for the service of God, which was at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. So these are the children of Israel, could have been the poor that were left in the land from the passage before. You remember most of the higher-ups were taken out and taken uh, captive. There were some people left in the land. And a couple months ago when I was talking about this, I asked you to think about what it was like for them. Because we've seen pictures of World War II, some of the towns, that how devastated they were after World War II. And I remember going to Germany one time and seeing uh, pictures of what it looked like after the war. I mean, it was just piles and piles of rubble. That's what Jerusalem was like without a group to come help clean up. So there were people that lived for decades and their whole lives in this burned out rubble. And so it must have been interesting or challenging to think of the people coming back from captivity. As awful as it was, they probably weren't happy about everything that the returning people did. You kind of get used to it. We, we adapt as humans, and new people move into, hey, let's do this, this. You're like, okay, I know it's rubble, but it's kind of my rubble, and I don't just assume not have new people messing with it. So they were could have been people that were left in the land. There's the priest and the Levites. The priests were the ones that were the mediators. Um, the Levites were... The rest of the Levites were ones that helped do things like I did on Friday, set up the chairs, you know, just kind of make things function. And then the descendants of the captivity, those were ones that made the journey or some whose parents had made the journey because we've had a couple decades pass. So maybe your parent walked all the way the 900-mile walk from captivity to be here and you were born here. And then they did these sacrifices. Now, those who were good students of the scripture would have recognized this is way smaller than when Solomon did it. So just by comparison, they had about 600 sheep going. Solomon had 120,000. So if they were good students of the scripture, they would know that what we're doing now is minuscule in comparison to what it originally was. But they're doing something significant. So if they could let go of what was and live in the moment they were in, they had an awesome experience before them because they were able to do something that they hadn't been able to do for decades. They were actually able to worship in Jerusalem. They were able to do what God said, and they were able to experience the joy of the Lord by obeying him and seeing what he would have for them. And then the picture of the 12 tribes, uh, if you know your history from it, the t most of the 10 tribes that were in the northern kingdom got dispersed. So... I would say almost all the descendants that were there were from Judah and Benjamin, the two tribes. But they, they, they do this thing on behalf of all 12. And it's a picture looking back, and it's a picture looking forward of what could be. It's a very hopeful, hopeful thing. There is this concept of sin offering in here. And lest they forget, 
it was sin that made them have to walk the 900 miles. So it's really important that God makes it clear that you've got to deal with sin. You have to deal with it. There's no getting away around it. There's just no blessing without it. And the same is true for us today. I'm amazed the older I get with the different variations of the same basic sins that humans can do. It's just amazing. It's the same general categories, and yet humans are finding new ways to really mess it up. And God's line is still there. You cannot sin and experience the goodness of the kingdom. It just doesn't happen that way. But he's a good shepherd. He's a good shepherd that provides a way out that we can't do for ourselves. So we were coming home from the father-daughter dance, which was awesome. Thanks for all of you who set that up. We went down to Alta Vista to the granary, which is um, the Germeroth family's son, Chris and Sarah. They run a wedding venue down there that's perfect for this. And we had a blast. I mean, seeing it was full. It was just great to see dads with their girls out there uh, dancing around. Uh, I came in. I had my suit on. We cleaned up. It's 10-something. Coming back, uh, going in the gate at our farm, and I heard a sheep make noise. It wasn't the, hey, I'm being attacked or anything. It was just the, hey, hey. And I thought, I know what it is. This thing's got its head stuck in the fence. I just could tell by the sound. And my hands are full with a lot of chocolate. Thank you for those of you who didn't eat all the chocolate. And my suit, and I'm kind of tired. I'm ready to go to bed. And I hear this, hey, hey, because she could see me. And I'm thinking, I know which sheep it is. I know what section. I know she tried to reach the grass. I should just leave her there so she learns her lesson. But what I've learned with sheep is they're dumb, and she is not going to learn her lesson, and she's going to spend all night stuck in the fence. So I go in. I change. I'm out there in the dark. I don't need the flashlight. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm dealing with. And sure enough, her head is stuck in the fence. And so it's a little painful for me because I've got to get my fingers in there, and she pulls her head out, and there's a time when there's no space between my finger, the wire, and the sheep's head, and it usually hurts. I haven't figured a way around it. But out she went. She was happy. I went back in. That's a picture of God the Father. He is aware that humans have this tendency to sin, so he makes a way out. He doesn't excuse it, but he's the only one that can step in and get us out of it period. And so these sin offerings point towards that. And it's just good to remember, no matter how educated we get, no matter what technology does for us. Um, I taught jam last week and was talking to the kids about just how I was as a kid. And it's been several decades. And, and they, I would say things like this story of the sixth grade thing and how I used to sulk, you know, and and get, um, you know, just so locked in on the way I think should, things should be that would ruin the mood or try to ruin the mood for the whole family. And I said to them, but you guys are more advanced than I am. You guys don't do that kind of thing where you just sulk anymore, I'm sure. And one kid said, you're giving us way too much credit. You know, it's, they're the same. Even the words are the same. As I would tell stories of when I was a kid and wasn't getting my way, they still use the same words. Um, and we are just stuck that way. And the only way out is through God. So they get to celebrate Passover on this 14th day. So things are, um, it's, you know, it's a couple weeks later after they do this. And, and uh, they, they celebrate. And, they, whoops, I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. Sorry about that. Um, so they celebrate the Passover. It's five weeks later. 
And you'll note that um, the priests and the Levites have purified themselves. They've obeyed the, Lord, the word of the Lord. They had to go back and learn the scriptures again. They hadn't been dealing with this. So they finally start doing, okay, I'm going to do it the way God wants me to do it. And it takes a while. They've got to go through this purification process. Are we willing to make the effort to do things God's way? Are we really, and sometimes it's a longer process of dealing with sin and aligning our own lives to God. And they, they did it. And there is no joy in the Lord without obedience to the Lord. There's things you need to address. There's things you need to recognize that we have a boss and I'm not it. I am not it. I'm not that person. God is the boss and we need to align ourselves to it. And when you do that, there's a lot of joy. And so they took the Passover lambs um, and they did it for themselves and their brethren. And just imagine uh, what it was like for them celebrating this feast there. It's going to be hard for us to picture it, but it was such a significant piece of celebration for their national identity. There must have been an incredible sense of joy in doing that. So imagine, um, it's tough to pick an analogy that serves, but we have certain things that we celebrate. Like say we weren't able to celebrate Christmas for a long time. And then suddenly we got to do the candles and the holy night or some other thing that really matters to you before the Lord. Thanksgiving dinner. Say you couldn't do that for a while. And then suddenly we're down, we're sitting down and we played football in the backyard and the turkey's cooking and we're getting to do what we are made to do. That's the feeling that they were having. And I'm going to save some of the talk about Passover till we get a little closer to Easter. This would be a good time to talk about it. But I'm going to skip, skip that for now just because as we get closer to Easter, it'll mean a lot more. So, uh, again, we're in, still in 6. And it talks about how the children of Israel who had returned from the captivity ate together with all those who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. I don't know that I can't say every generation because I haven't lived every generation, but there is a sense as I talk to people that they feel like now is the worst of what it is. Like, look at the world. It's getting worse. And I see evidence for that. I also know there's been a lot of times in the history of man that it's actually probably looked worse. And the filth of the nations makes sense if you were there. What they were doing in terms of idolatry, just a lack of regard for human beings, all of that would have been just filth to you. I, I don't know. Um, I've been in one or two cities where you could just feel the sin of it, you know, and you just got to get out, you know. And, and in Baltimore, we had a couple neighborhoods like that, areas of the city that you're just like, Ugh, good stuff does not happen here. And so the filth was all around them. If you've been in an area, try to imagine that all around you. Now, the people who had come from Babylon, they were comparing back to the, to the Passover. They actually had a longer walk than they did from Egypt to Israel. Now, again, they spent 40 years doing it, but it wasn't actually as far. And some of the situations were a little different. It would be real obvious for them to link what they just did with what happened when Moses led the people out. But their walk was a lot longer. And to be honest, their situation in captivity was probably a lot better than what had gone on amongst the Egyptians. And so it says, um, you know, if you were there, you would have been either one of the people who walked or your parents did or someone that was left over. 
there may have been other people from other nations there who had separated themselves. There seems to be good evidence throughout scriptures of God-fearers who would join. But anybody who was willing to separate themselves could do it. And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Remember, that was when they, they couldn't make bread the normal way, and they carried it with them as they ate that uh, crossing through the desert, leaving uh, Egypt. And there's joy in there. For the Lord God made them joyful. Joy is what we need. The joy of the Lord, after we dealt with living the way he says he wants to live and dealt with sin, there's joy in the Lord. And the people of God should be forefront in that. So some of the vision that I'll kick out while we're in February in particular is those coming out of the pandemic, we have this chance to reinvent church because the guilt for not going to church went away. I don't know if you guys noticed how long that took, but since we weren't going, we, it, it was different. I mean, for me, I remember 20 years of my life when I didn't go. But for those of you who grew up going to church, that was a strange thing to suddenly be Sunday morning. Now, all the introverts were like, yes, finally doing the world the way I want it um, for a couple weeks. And then you started missing your things that you like to do. But we're coming out of the pandemic, and we have a chance to do church in a way that nobody else has for a long time, to really think about what the essentials are. And as, uh, now it happened fast, but um, society was on pause. So the normal things that people did to fill up their schedule, they didn't work. So the church, and this is mostly thanks to Kirsten, our church, we were a little bit like Forrest Gump with his shrimp boat out there. She started having ideas of things that we could do because we were a church. So we started celebrating. I don't know if you remember, we did Celtic New Year's. So we celebrated the ball dropping. We did that behind the church. We had pallets with Christmas lights, and we dropped the ball at 7. Why? Because I fall asleep most New Year's Eve. So we celebrated it when it was New Year's Eve in Ireland at, at midnight was seven here. That way we could get home and go to bed. But you could bring your kids. So we did that. We had a chance to just, the church could then rise up. I remember feeling bad for Emma because we had to do your birthday party. It, it was during the height of the pandemic and the only way we could do our birthday party was around the fire pit outside of church because we could gather since it was a religious gathering. But there were chances for the church to do things that other groups couldn't do. And it made us think, what if the church asserted itself and said, we are going to be the ones that bring joy to the culture? Let's try to build, we have a chance to think about the different uh, festivals and joyful occasions that the church calendar gives us. What if we lead with those? And so we're trying to do that. We're, we, did, uh, we did a few before. Like say, um, I talked about the father-daughter dance. It was so awesome. Uh, it was a great experience. It's nowhere in the scriptures. Nowhere in the scriptures to say a church shall do a father-daughter dance in February. Nowhere. But it did turn the hearts of fathers to their kids, like the scriptures talk about. We're going to celebrate St. Patrick's Day party, March, middle of March. We're going back to the um, aviary, and it's a blast. We're going to tell stories. We have a chance. We've done a few of these. I, I read uh, Shelton's book, In His Steps. I don't know if some of you guys have read the books that, you know, do like Jesus did. Nowhere have I heard Christians say, let's gather and practice telling stories. But Jesus is the greatest storyteller ever, and the church hasn't done much to get better at that. 
So we instituted St. Patrick's Day, and we're gonna tell stories, and there's a story I'm thinking of about the boy with the screw in his belly button that I think, a screw for a belly button, that's what we're gonna tell. And, and then we're gonna move into more important ones. But St. Patrick's Day is a great chance to be set a new thing, it's the middle of March, it's raining, we're doing it on a Wednesday, you probably don't have anything else great to do on a rainy, hopefully not rainy, Wednesday in March. But let's get in there. The kids told jokes, because if a kid can learn to tell a joke, they can learn to tell a story. So it's an incremental step towards storytelling. But St. Patrick was a devout Christian, and the churches do very little to make the most of it. We stand back while we lived in Chicago, they dyed the river green, and you know they'll do green and pinch each other and stuff. That, that's not why St. Patrick came and risked his life so that we would pinch each other for not wearing green. It was to proclaim the gospel of the Lord. So as you learn the real story of St. Patrick, that's a great chance because everybody in our country knows when St. Patrick's Day is but doesn't know much about St. Patrick. So let's, as a church, step into the culture, not back from the culture, and start to say, hey, we've got the reason to be more joyful than anyone else on this earth. If we obey the Lord, if we deal with sin, and if we're willing to step forward boldly into the culture and say, let's have a good time, we can celebrate because we know that we're eternally secure through faith in Jesus. So as you move forward, we may add a few more things. You think, why are they doing that? Well, it's because we want to be joyful. So now's when the gap comes. Now we go into, um, we go into Ezra 7, and Ezra himself actually shows up. Now, in the midst, between these two little slides, we just skipped 60 years. 60 years happened. And in that, things like Esther, remember that whole book, happens in between this last slide and this one. The captivity time, and just so we can keep a lot of great things happening, you've got Daniel on the lion's den, you've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You have Nebuchadnezzar, who eats grass and then comes to faith. All these incredible stories are in this little section of time, and we get to celebrate it because God was moving in all of it. So Ezra shows up from Babylon, and he's a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him his request, and according to the hand of the Lord uh, his God was upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the Nethanim, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So a lot of time has passed since the slide before. Things have slowed down a little bit. They aren't moving forward as much in the reforms of the Lord, and God raises up a new leader to push them forward. It's a four-month walk. They knew what they were getting into. There were no sheets along the way. There were no cooler packs. There were no coffee thermoses enough to carry you on this four-month walk. If you left, it, you had to be committed to do it. And he needs now, Ezra's showing up. He's never been there, but God is sending him, and it's important to just to recognize who he is. He's going to show up, and he's going to have this sense of authority from the king and from God himself, and Ezra prepares his heart. And I, want, I wanted to think, you know, when I like I'd go back to my 20s, I wanted to serve the Lord, but I knew my heart needed a lot of work. What does it mean for you to prepare your heart for the work of the Lord? What does it mean even to prepare your heart to come here and worship? Because 
it takes some intention to live a life for Jesus. It really takes some intention and some effort. And I know after the pandemic, I kind of got used to Sundays sort of sleeping in. And I don't know, Kirsten left, I can't ask if I did. Did I share the story about the, like, choose your own virtual church? Nod your head if I did that one. So one of the cool things about Kerem Outreach is I get to go travel to different churches. And I went to this one church right after the pandemic, and they had the, the leader got up and showed this video, which I'm not going to show. Um, but it was, you got out of, you put, rather than get out of bed, you put these adjustable goggles on and chose church you wanted. Like, you, there was a dial one to five on your level of worship. You know, if you wanted just kind of reflective or really charged up, you could set that up. You could choose the outfits for yourself, casual, formal. Choose the outfits of those around you. Um, you could choose the conviction level of the sermon. Do you want to be convicted? You know, and it was this whole spoof, and it went on and on and on. And I thought, yeah, that's tempting. You know, I'd like to not have to get out of bed and still go to church in my goggles and, and dial it to however I want, like whatever mood I was in. And we had to decide, are we going to come out of this? Um, you know, Jim, you've been reminding us of this in the elders' meetings, and, and, I don't, and you said it some in your speaking. The community is what it's about. You know, you can, you can hear better teachers for sure than me on your ride home. That's the world we're in. It can all show up right to your phone. But we can't do this together. We can't eat lunch together. And so as a church, we're just trying to go back to the basics. One of the things the early church did was they ate together. It's not rocket science, but we didn't do it that much before. Well, we've, we're doing it every Sunday. So if you want to stay, we were having subs for lunch today. Stay. That's something that the early church did. The community is what it's all about. And so as we learn together, the face-to-face -face thing is a value, and we want to we celebrate it. But you got to prepare your heart to be here, and you got to make an effort to do it. And so um, he was ready, and he's a gifted guy. I hadn't thought much about Ezra until I got to study this, but he's pretty gifted in a broad way. But his main thing is he, he says he's prepared his heart to do it. He's somebody that wanted to live out the law of God before he talked about it. That's really important. James says, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And so that's important for someone that's going to follow Jesus. You've got to be looking in there for how you're going to adapt your life day in, day out to, to, to live it. And then he was gifted to teach and how important that was, that that's what they needed. They needed to focus on the scripture and teach the ordinances of God. And then you get this letter from the king. And I just put the beginning of it in there because it's a long letter. It takes up most of seven. But some of the things that the king said to do, he said, uh, you're supposed to go and inquire, which is interesting, on behalf of the king and his seven counselors, are the people following the law of the God? That's in verse 14. Interesting that a king would do that. I don't know that it's for the best reasons. Um, I know that keeping people... Uh, in their religion was one of the strategies of the kings at that kings at that time. But either way, it's serving God's purposes. Then there's an offering that the king uh, puts forth in, in verse 16 that they're supplying the offering. Now, if um, I'm sure of this, 
if Ezra was as good a scribe as he talks about, uh, as the scripture talks about, he would have known Isaiah 60. He would have known about the nations giving wealth and the king's blessing. He would have been celebrating the truth of the scripture that he was seeing happen as this king provided for the worship service to happen. And then he says in verse 18, he says, whatever's left of the money, do as you see fit. So this king gives him money. He must have been a gifted administrator as well. And none of the religious leaders are going to be taxed. So with all these people that agree to serve, they're going to get a tax benefit. And then he tells them in that same section, according to your wisdom, set up magistrates and judges who know God's law. So Ezra was coming in not just to teach it, but to set up a whole society and, and reestablish a society based on God's law. And then finally, he just reminds them to teach the people who don't know God's law. And so what a privilege. Imagine how excited Ezra was. Nervous about the walk, I'm sure. Not sure what to do. He, he'd never done anything like this before, but he's, he's willing to go, and he's willing to try this out. And he's got a broad range of of influences. I mean, he probably was super excited about his chance to teach Isaiah. He was probably nervous about setting up judges or the things he needed to do, but it was an incredible chance to establish a community based on God's law, and he did it. He jumped into it. And so the thing that we'll end with uh, in the scripture is his, it's called the Psalm of Ezra by some people. This is him saying, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers, who has put, put such a thing as this in the king's heart, to beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And so I was encouraged, as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. He is gotta be pumped. I mean, he is, he got permission. He's got the letter. He's ready to roll. He's thinking about his teaching. They're packing for the journey. He's getting to have these leaders come with him. Really, really, really fun. Now, Ezra wasn't written just because our church was going to move to Madison Heights. So I want to be clear in what I'm about to say. It didn't all point to our move across the river, but there are some parallels. Like I said, we've made it through COVID. Our founding couple has retired. They're alive and well, okay? Um, but they're retired. And so that was a big change, to come out of COVID, have Mark and Kathy step down since the 80s. That's a big change. Then we went and sold our building. What church in its right mind sells their building at that stage? We did, because it was bigger than we needed. And the timing was perfect. And it was sad in a lot of ways, you know, as I was cleaning out different things, there's a, a sense of loss there. But I will say, as I look back from a, I was a accounting and finance in, in major at the University of Richmond. Um, Mark, I gotta hand it to you, real estate investments, you nailed it. I mean, you absolutely nailed it. If we were looking for someone to invest money in real estate, I think we did well um, coming out of that. Um, the land that we had on Waterlick, we, Paid for 200 and I think sold it for 400 or something. So, I mean, under the surface here is a gifted real estate investment consultant. So we were able to take that money, and then God provided the land through the window there. 
On the 22nd, we go before the county to present our site plans, which you've already sent in. So if you wanna see the site plan, it's on the connection table over here. I rolled it out so you can see what we submitted to the county and we'll see what they say on the 22nd. We're in a season of the flat, like I said, of the river. So we got a paddle. There's, um, I'm enjoying it, but I will say there's a fair amount more schlepping going on than I would ever have imagined. And I felt it Friday when I got up and I thought, okay, our stuff that used to be on one location, we have a storage unit there. We've got three of them there. We've got stuff stuffed in our house. I have stuff in the barn. We have Main Street. The back of Kirsten's car is usually full of church-related items. And it was Friday, and I'm trying to figure out what was where. I'll be ready for the schlepping season to end. But a lot of strength is formed in the schlepping season because it makes it think about why we do what we do. And so I would encourage you to look at this season with our church and think, why do we do what we do? Because we have to work to set everything up. This will look like a middle school cafeteria tomorrow. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll get to change it around. But God has provided for us. Uh, financially, things are going well. The budget, I've got that with me here. If someone wants to see that. Basically, I mean, it's a much smaller budget than we had years ago, three, four years ago. But if we can bring in about $45,000 a month, we'll make it, which is basically what happened the first six months of last year. It's what happened after we moved to Mont Ellison. So thank you very much. Um, we're going to show it a little differently on the announcements and the email. If you're not on the email, please contact the church and get on that. That's going to say what's going on um, as a church. But we're just going to put in last month's, you know, because remember how we would show the collective thing and for those of you who are finance minded that got a little depressing from time to time to be honest but now we're just showing what happened last month so we need 45 a month we got in 56 last month thank you very much that's that's financial health for us we've got the money for the building 1.5 millions in t-bills so i've got a statement right here if anybody wants to see that the other is a little less than a million now because we've been uh, paying the uh, different like architects, civil engineers. That's in First National Bank, and we have three other accounts in First National Bank that we can show you the totals of as well. An operating, a reserve account, and then the designated money that would have uh, things like missions trips and things like that in it. So we that's the finances side. We're at a very healthy time. The hope is that we can be, as a congregation, strong and, and pay for our raise enough money to cover the monthly expenses so we don't have to dip into the building thing. And then that way, when we get the building, we'll be at a healthy spot. So that's where we're heading um, with the money. We're trying to develop some of these ideas of what we do as a church. The, the big shift we made vision-wise, and it's subtle, but it was big. When I was the youth pastor here, we never would have dreamed of doing something before church. Never. But now the youth group uh, meets before church and then what that did was a slight pivot, but it changed us. Because then now Jam meets before church, the Davenports are leading that, and a, a really strong group of kids is in there. And then that paved the way for the round table to round the table discussions to go before church. And then um, the coffee team, the Fesmeyers and, and, and Ellen, I know you're on that. And then uh, Andy Ashcroft had that bar back there. And he's like, we need that bar. He's like, we need this thing in the new building. So Todd put wheels on it. 
that's staying with us. Um, when we leave here, uh, I push that up on the trailer. We're just moving it through the window. You'll be drinking coffee off of that bar for years to come. But they started coming earlier and serving coffee. We've created this very simple, if you want discipleship, come early, 9 o'clock. Then if you want worship, 10 to 10.15, 10.20. And then if you want fellowship, stay after. Real easy. Um, streamlined as we can get it. The small groups, we're doing the different ways. We've got life groups going. Um, they're going great, but we could use a few more. We're adding different kinds of small groups, like the round the table. You don't have to go every month if you don't want to, but join in, because if you feel like you don't know anyone, uh, that's the only way to break it. I mean, it's just too big of a crowd. There's 100, 200 of us here afterward. We're going to introduce things like, I don't know if this will work, but we're going to try it. Name tag Sunday. Just every once in a while. We're just going to put a name tag on everybody. Because I know, if you're like me, you may have met people two or three times, and you're embarrassed to ask their name again. Let's just all admit that that's there and put the name tags on so that we can get to know each other. We have Kenny Longo on staff, which is a big deal, and he does lots of things well, and one of the things he really handles well is big administrative projects with a shepherd's heart, and so he has taken on the membership approach, and so we'll talk about it more as, as to what we mean by that, but we, we haven't talked about that in a couple of years because everything was up in the air during COVID. It was tough to be a church leader. I remember being very glad that I wasn't a church leader when this whole started. I wasn't even thinking of it because it was rough. I mean, you would have people leave the church because you were wearing masks, and you'd have them leaving them because you weren't on the same day. It was tough. So we didn't do much with the membership stuff, but now we're, we're getting back into it. So if you were on the ministry team, as we called it, you should have gotten an email from Kenny just talking about, you know, do you want to stick with us? We're doing a very basic database thing that Lisa has found for us. Good job, Lisa. Um, I can use it. So if I can use it. Anybody can manage the technology. It'll just have faces of adults on there, not the kids. So you can look up somebody's face if you've met them a couple times. You just want to know who they are. So that's for people who have been on the ministry team. You can sign up. If you have been coming for a while and we have your information, Kenny has also sent out something to you, maybe even yesterday, wasn't it, Kenny? Friday. Um, just saying what we mean by being a member. And those papers are over here as well. So that was a lot of talking about vision, but I felt like we needed to do it. So I'm going to pray. Um, look at the announcements. The youth group's doing a Super Bowl party. Um, there's a Cyprus trip. There's information on the Cyprus summer team. And the swag party is doing a Super Bowl party as well. And, um, oh, and there's a meeting today if you want to do the service trip to Kentucky. Um, and that for the youth group if you want to do that as well. And for Kiram House. So um, you can do that well with the days. Okay? Let me pray and then Lucas will close us. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to be a church. Thank you that we have permission to be in this school. Thank you for the provision financially for the hope of building a sanctuary um, that's beautiful and a place where we can glorify you. Thank you for the gifts that people bring, the service that takes many, many of us to pull off this service every Sunday. And I ask that you bless us with joy and peace as we go out. In Jesus' name. Amen.